On today's edition of Career Lab with Levi and Bobak, we connect with singer and songwriter Dave Hawes. We follow his unique career to becoming a musician and learn more about the day Dave realized he was making more money playing his axe than swinging a hammer. Find out if you have what it takes to make a career out of music. Welcome to Career Lab with Levi and Bobak. I'm Levi Maya in the Lighthouse Studio with Bobak Bebahanian. Ready to go to Lake Kachuma? I am, yeah. <laughs> right. L- little Lake Kachuma. It's a beautiful lake here, about 35 minutes uh, outside of Santa Barbara. We're going to rent the pontoon on Sunday, but uh, watching the weather because, you know, Lake Kachuma's got its own little, little weather spot, and I think about 97. By 10 a.m. Sunday, so it we'll looked, see. It looked a little warm, but you know, more than two or three days out, I don't really trust the forecast, so we'll see. But if it's going to be that hot, maybe we push it. But um, you said it has a sunshade over the pond. It does. It's, it's got a sunshade. I don't know if it's full, though. So my three-year-old might, might not like, you know, six hours of 100 degrees. So <laughs> yeah. we'll see how that goes. Uh, super excited for, for today's show. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in with us. You know, today on Career Lab with Levi and Bobak, we're so excited to connect with Dave Hawes, a Philadelphia-born singer and songwriter. Dave performs solo and with his band, The Mermaid. He recently released his sixth album, Drive It Like It's Stolen. His current tour extends from the U.S. to Europe. He's a husband, a father of twin boys, so we definitely appreciate Dave carving out some time to be on today's show. Dave, how are you? I'm doing well. Hey, buddy. Uh, how are you? We're, we're doing well. I, you know, I, I, I know I recently saw your twin boys, but you, you look good. You look good for having twins. You know, you look like you're well-rested and, you know, well, feeling good. I'm not. I am not well-rested, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You, you, it's the sunshine that keeps me feeling good. Yeah, um, finally. The sun is back. I rely on water and, uh, and sunshine. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Boy, was that some lead-in. You are just wonderful at that, Bob. You know, it that was, was your best one yet, Bob. Yeah, it was. It was. Really? It was all the years of of doing it when very little people were watching. Well, Mizzou, hey, Mizzou, AKA Missoula, Montana. And so, how is that different than now? <laughs> no one <laughs> is watching yet. But I'm I think Missoula, Montana next week. Yeah. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, be- it's beautiful. You know, uh, May till September. I can't think of a better place that that I've ever lived or visited in Missoula. Those those months are just gorgeous. So you're you're hitting a sweet spot. Yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to get right into it. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, so let's start off with, you know, for those that don't know Dave Hawes, how would you describe your music? Um, the simplest way is to just say that I play rock and roll music. I mean, which is funny. I thought that that was the simplest way for the last ten years, but as I get older and realize, you know, let's face it, we're, we're in our mid-40s. Uh, when you're talking to a younger person, rock and roll is an unclear uh, uh, blanket statement. You know, it doesn't, that umbrella doesn't really encompass enough to, to describe it. So people go, oh, like, what do you mean? And I typically would say, you know, big influences for me are Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty and then The Clash. And, you know, for someone who really has no idea about 
um, music, it would be like, I guess Green Day would be a, another band. It's a little bit punk influenced. Um, the older I've gotten, the less so, you know, the more it's just sort of like American mm-hmm. rock and roll. <clears throat> based in songs like songwriting is the main um thing that, that that i think i i think of myself and i think of my career as a as i'm a career songwriter um but yeah that would be the style it would be it's funny because people kind of like oh i don't quite get it and then as soon as you say tom petty or you know even brian adams or something like that people right are like, oh I, okay yeah cool you talked a little bit about about that getting older and and you know a slight change was that organic or was that something that you thought about hey i've hit this age i need to pivot to this um no it was pretty organic i mean i've always been more or less just a fan of songs you know so i'm as i'm as interested in uh you know the wu-tang clan as i am slayer as i am patty griffin as i am Carol Crow, whatever. Like I, I love all kinds of music. I've always been a huge music fan. In terms of tastes and what I want to say, um, I started playing punk. It was just a, it was a thing that I was super into in my twenties, and uh, that's how I got initially going and developed a little bit of an audience. Um, and and so you become sort of attached to the first thing you do, and uh, but naturally over the years, gradually, I've been working, I think, back towards the things that compelled me as a kid, you know, mm-hmm. what was on the radio when I was a kid. That's kind of what my music sounds like, Yeah, um, I think. Um, and then that, that's kind of how you get back to that Bruce Springsteen or, or Tom Petty yeah. kind of thing. But um, whether it was, it, I think it was, an, it's a good question because it was organic in that I always loved that kind of music. I think that it's a pivot in that I don't necessarily want to be tethered to playing in a rock and roll band when I'm really old. Um, and I think by making songwriting the focal point, I end up with, it's a two, I mean, you, you end up with better songs that way, Mm -hmm. number one. So however you play them, whether that's with a band or as a duo with me and my brother, as a trio with our keyboard player or me solo, you're going to end up with a better song if you focus more on that. And secondly, if that's the focal point, you can play with an acoustic guitar or a piano when you're very, very old in a in a small theater or something and have a nice night even at the age of 75 if I'm still working then, you know? Right. Um, something you can still present the work <clears throat> in a compelling way um, if it's not tied to one specific uh, style of delivery, you yeah. know? Yeah. And, and I think for lots of other genres, that that can get tricky. You know, how are you like, although, I mean, people are sort of proving it wrong. It's like, is public enemy going to be playing in their (laughs) late seventies? I don't know. Like it, it'll be interesting. But like, for me, I think in that sense, I can always pull it back to like a folk style delivery. Right. And uh, there'll be someone that wants to hear that. And there'll be some place that I can play that kind of music. So it's, it's not totally calculated, but it, it is, um, it is a better position to be in than like if if I was still in my rock and roll band and people were like, well, we want you to be a punk band. It's like I don't I don't want to just paint with one one kind of color. Right. I know Levi's got a great opening question for you, but real quick, you mentioned Wu Tang Clan. Best concert I ever went to, the former Sony Blockbuster Theater at in Camden, New Jersey. Wu Tang and Rage Against the Machine. Oh. I was at the same show as you at the same oh. on the same night. 
We just didn't know each other yet. Oh, uh, what was that? <laughs> was that that was late nineties, right? Nineteen ninety seven. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Ninety six or ninety seven. So good. Great show. Yeah. Yeah, so take us back to that time. When when did you know this was what you were going to do? Well, that time I was I had pivoted. I was going to college right out of high school. I went to a private Christian school outside Philadelphia. Um, my folks were super into evangelical Christianity, and I was not. And so that created a very rebellious streak, a big rub. Um and so that I think was a big part of why punk was so attractive. It was an, a, you know, it was something where you know that rebellion was expressed well. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's see. Right out of high school, I was working at a fondue restaurant called the Melting Pot in Chestnut Hill. Oh, delicious! Yeah, and uh, I was going to Temple University, and I was going to make movies. That's what I thought. I went in and took some film courses initially. And the second semester I was there, the owner of the fondue restaurant asked me to manage the place. Um, And so it didn't take me long to figure out what his hustle was, but the initial allure of that was, oh, wow, I'm not even old enough to drink, and I'm going to be running a restaurant, and I'm going to be hiring people. And you guys can do the math on what that you know, what those opportunities presented to an 18 year old kid. Um, it was, it was great, you know, and, and then it very quickly led to, um, strip poker in the basement games and, (laughs) uh, you know, booze flowing very freely and very, very late nights and all this other, you know, madness that would happen when you give the keys to your restaurant to an 18 year old. (laughs) Um, but so that was an initial pivot, and I did that for a while, and I realized how far that was going to take me away from music. And um, but I had to make some money, you know, I had to figure something out. And so I figured if I a friend of mine was doing um, commercial HVAC work, and uh, he was like, "Look, you can come work for me, and and then you'll be available to go to shows on the weekends and at night." And I mean, little did I know, it was like he had to be up at five in the morning. It was like a real commercial construction job. But I pivoted away from the restaurant thing to that. Um, and then, you know, it just sort of naturally grew. But ultimately, the thing that that kind of turned the crank for me was I started to roadie for bands. Mm-hmm. I started to be their um, either T-shirt person or um, guitar tech or tour manager, things like that. Like, I, I figured it out pretty quick um, how to tour. And once I saw that economy, the touring economy, and I was like, oh, and I was, you know, I was touring with punk bands and they all, the various people that I worked for took me under their wing and were kind enough to kind of show me how that all worked, particularly the Bouncing Souls from New Jersey who have, you know, a 40 year career and tour all over the world and have put out countless records and sold a lot of records. And, you know, they still play, like they played Asbury Park on Saturday to 4,000 people. Um, and so they're an institution in the punk rock scene and in New Jersey and so on. And so they took me under their wing and kind of showed me like, hey, this is what being a touring musician looks like. And they were really encouraging in that they heard that I, you know, they knew I was writing songs and playing little guitar riffs and things like that. And they were really encouraging to get, for me to get my own thing going. And so that kind of really accelerated. It put me in a really good position because by then I had been touring for years. I kind of knew what to do, what not to do. I had been bank banking songs 
while I was tuning their guitars and you know partying and going all over the world. And I want to know so, what not to do. A party. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, uh, and, and the, the, there's tons of what not to do. But ultimately, <laughs> I started a band called The Loved Ones, and our first show was opening for them, The Bouncing Souls, to 1,200 people at the Trocadero in Philadelphia. So we started off on you know first or second base. You know, we we, we kind of the bases we had runners on base before we even played right. our first. Show. Right. Um. And so that went well. We got signed to an independent record label that's pretty, you know, that has a pretty big reach. We put out two records, and that partying that I was talking about kind of caught up with us. Um, I was trying at the time to be a married person and be a homeowner and run a construction business and be in a punk rock band all at the same time. And uh, then the crash of 2008 hit, which ultimately help to set all those embers on fire, especially accelerated by pouring booze on it. Um, so yeah, so that was, that was that whole initial saga of me, like kind of getting on board and people know who the singer of the loved ones is, you know, like the people would come to see the loved ones. We played all over the world. We played in Japan, we played in Europe. Um, and it was about five years of, of really hard work. And then that crash hit, and and just to go back a little bit, the reason I had a construction business was I had started a punk rock band at 27 years old, 26 years old or something like that. And I had a mortgage to pay. And so it was like, well, I can't go from roadie wages, which is, you know, whatever that was, a thousand bucks a week to go into like a thousand bucks a month that the band makes, you know, because when you first start, there's no money coming in. And so I kind of necessity became the mother of invention and, and a friend from high school who was a really good carpenter was looking to go out on his own. I had been contracting all those years when I wasn't on tour and we went into business together and really did well. It was leading into that financial crash. So money was cheap. People were putting all kinds of kitchens in and bathrooms in and, you know, the sky was the limit and we were making really good money and that subsidized my ability ability to go out and play in a rinky dink punk rock band that was sort of making its its mm-hmm. way. So that was that whole thing. And then after the crash, I kind of was like, well, I don't want to go out with my punk band. There's no, you know, people aren't going to shows and there's four of us. How are we going to split? You know, I got to split up the money four ways and there's no carpentry work that's worth a damn. What if I just went out with an acoustic guitar and, Gave it a whirl. And uh, so little by little from 2009 to 2010, I started to like, I was contracting and going out on little tiny acoustic tours and being like, oh, wow. Well, you know, if I sell a couple t-shirts and I get paid a couple hundred bucks, like I'm making carpentry wages and I'm playing my guitar. This is, I guess this is what I'll do. I'll be a solo singer songwriter. So to answer your earlier question of like, was it a pivot? It was a little bit necessity and a little bit like, well, I always wanted to do this. This is just accelerating the rate at which I'm doing it. So when you were making carpenter money, but playing Mm -hmm. the guitar, was Mm -hmm. that the point where you were like, okay, this can be a career for me? Yeah, I think so. I think, and it's funny you bring that up because I don't, 
So that's a really good question, Bob. And I wonder if we've talked about this privately and that's how you No, had, no, we have not. It's on my list. It's number that's six. You, no. And that's how you had the insight into uh into that. I I think about it that way still. In other words, when I'm assessing what we do and don't want to do or what we can do or where we're gonna go, I always think about it as if I was a carpenter. I'm like, well, if I was a carpenter, I would be making this. And we're actually making this today. And it's me and my brother and, you know, off in a band. And I'm like, well, I'm way ahead of where I'd be if I was swinging a hammer. And that oftentimes is the floor that I have for my earning. You know what I mean? I'm like, well, I'm making more than I would as a contractor. Now, the problem with that is I'm, I'm many years older. I'm not a carpenter. And I was never a carpenter that just went to work with a tool belt and, and had a day rate. I was a business owner. And so therefore you're making a lot more than a carpenter, but that's just sort of still the way my head works when it comes time to make business decisions. And I think it drives my brother, who's my business partner now, a little crazy. He's like, well, what do you mean? What does carpentry have to do with anything? (laughs) Well, you got to understand that like when you go through a financial crisis like that and it impacts your entire life, there's certain uh, responses that kick into money that are kind of automatic where I'm like, oh, I mean, I, I was like, what the hell am I going to do? You know, like I was making a lot of money and, and able to live in the suburbs of Philadelphia comfortably. And, you know, I had a five bedroom house and all this stuff. And suddenly both things that earned money for me, one a little bit in the band and one in the, in, in, uh, contracting kind of dried up at once. And I was, and we were all, you know, there's a lot of panic around that time, as you remember, um, so yeah, I think that's still, I was like, oh, well I can just kind of show up in a car and make more money in a day strumming my guitar almost all over the world than most people, most working class people can make. And it felt like I was getting away with something. And, and on some level it still does to, to answer your question. That's I, the, I mean, for the psychology of it. The, the one thing about the work you do is, uh, th- that I think intrigues a lot of people because they don't know what it really entails is, is touring. What's it like to go on tour? What, you know, we hear the gamut of it's a, you know, tour of the world, great time to it's grueling. What's that experience been for you? It's all of those things because I mean, your, your draw in terms of how many people are coming to see you changes town to town. And so you could, you know, if we're playing Philadelphia and you see video of that, you know, if you play that on this TV show, it's going to look like we're rock stars. If you played video of us playing in Toronto or London or Germany or, you know, it, you'd be like, whoa, this guy is killing it. But if you saw what we did in New Orleans or Houston or Cincinnati or whatever, it's very, very humble. It looks a lot more like we're playing in a coffee shop kind of thing. And there's a hundred people and they buy merch. And, and, and so I think in order to continue working, I've always thought about it. Like I can always contract back down to that guy with an acoustic guitar because then all the money that's coming in is mine. Right. So there's that, but then we also have ambition and we have artistic choices. And so if there's, 700 people that come to see us every night in Germany, well, we're going to get a bus and we're going to bring a band and we're going to make it special. And so I think a lot of times having to think on your feet um, from a business or career standpoint 
sometimes informs the art and how you present it. And sometimes it's the other way. Sometimes I'm just hell bent on doing a thing and it costs way too much money. And my manager and my brother are like, what the hell is the matter with you? I'm like, no, we have to do this. But a lot of times I'm like, well, what's what's coming in for, you know, these 10 shows we just got offers for? And I assess it and I go, that's worth it if I go with just him. It's not worth bringing the band. Right. And so it's a lot of that. The day-to-day, to answer that question, because I think that's what people really want to know. Yeah, yeah. If it's Europe, it's what you think. It's it's There's a bus and the bus pulls up and we wake up in the bus and there's a coffee maker on the bus and we're just like, hey, man, you know, <laughs> and we walk down and we get food and there's food backstage and there's, you know, there's lights and amazing sound and there's the drummer and the merch person and the whole spiel. You know, there, there's it's the thing you're thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, there's there's free beer everywhere and there's free, you know, there's people that want to meet us and all this other jazz. There, that's what that's like. What? touring in the southern part of the United States is like is like kind of working in a Starbucks every day but you have to drive 200 miles to the next Starbucks right you're showing up and yeah there's people there that want to hear you and they want to pay you to work they want to pay for the songs that we make they want to buy records they want to buy t-shirts but there's not that many of them and and so our creature comforts are conceivably less at those kinds of shows. But Tim and I, again, we've been doing it long enough to know like, all right, but we we know where we want to eat. We don't have the whole band to worry about in Houston. We're just going to go eat a nice dinner either way. We know where we want to stay, which is like a nice hotel. We can afford that. And then we sort of just move according to those things. So uh, it's, I'm in a unique position. I don't, a lot of bands are like, well, there's four of us. We can't go there if they're only going to pay us 1500 bucks. And Tim and I are like, yeah, that could work if there's a string of shows, you know. Right. So it's a it's an interesting type of work because you know when you play music for a living, and increasingly as you get older, people are like, oh, I've never heard of you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, you play music, I've never heard of you. It's like, oh, you do law, I've never heard of you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that a prerequisite for my level of success? And that's just ego. You have to sort of yeah. fight that. You know, you're like, oh, you're in marketing? Why aren't you, um, why don't you market for Apple? You know, yeah. that would be an absurd question for me well, to ask a guy at a barbecue. I think that's also something that's come up with this writer's strike as well. People think like yeah. uh, the writer's strike or the uh, actors on strike that it means only, you know, A-list, you know, yeah. uh, celebrities that are that are affected by this. And they don't realize that there's union actors and union writers that are working, making a nice living that you've never heard of before. This is not just Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston, you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, there's in everything, there's a working class portion of every career, right? Mm-hmm. Where you can make a decent wage, you work hard. I got to go to work often. Right. It's not like, you know, but it is a funny thing. Yeah. I mean, actors get it bad too. You're like, oh, you're an actor? Anything I've ever heard of? Yeah. But that's like 85% of that workforce. <laughs> it's the ones, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. So it is, but you know, it, it, it makes me less uh apt at a barbecue where i don't know anyone to say even what i do you know i'm like i don't want to hear it i don't want to get into it or whatever it makes me a little bit more bashful about playing my hometown because it's like everyone in my hometown knows what i do and 
And having a show in our hometown is like, it's going to be okay, but I don't play in Santa Barbara. I, I Most of my career is built in other right. places, but I don't want to have to like play and then tell my mother-in-law or my friends who aren't into music, you should see how it goes in Chicago. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like it can be, um, it can be discouraging and it also, but it also keeps your feet on the ground. Cause you're like, well, look, it it's, I'm like everybody else. I got to go to work and, and I, but I, the, the thing that I think for me that's so cool is my work is compelling. I don't, I like my work. I like to write songs. I like to put out records. I like to play shows mm-hmm. and the travel. Yes, it can be grueling. You know, the flights get canceled and things get moved around and oh my God, I got all this gear. Yes, all that's true. But I mean, I get to go everywhere and we get to choose where we go for the most part and get to kind of more or less say how much we need to make. And it happens like that is incredible. And so I, I never want to lose sight of that. And, and now that I have kids, I can conceivably show them America and Europe whenever they're kind of old enough and not have to pay for it. You know, like that, that's just such a gift that I've been given. It exploded my mind when I started to travel outside of my original surroundings, which were, you know, Philly, Jersey, and right. know, New York, right. Whatever. So another piece I want to touch on, um, you know, with your writing, in addition to songs, an article, I, I know you wrote an article, uh, in USA today. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the title and I, and I might get it wrong was, you know, Taylor Swift, you know, owning her masters was really true punk right? Yeah. V- versus what you do. Talk a little bit about what that meant and, and why that was important for you to write. <laughs> Well, I just got asked by someone who was a fan that writes for USA Today to elaborate on a tweet. I tweeted essentially what you're saying, that that poll quote or whatever, like, oh, oh my God, who knew Taylor Swift was the punkest person on planet Earth? Now, the subtext of that is that punk is this ethos where you do what you want and you do it whether or not you have the backing of a corporation or a company or not, you just figure out how to do what you want to do. It's a I mean, it's, it's a blanket term for, um, do it yourself. Um, it's also a style of music. So for, for anybody out there who's like not as much in those weeds, that's what I meant by that. It's a punk thing. It also is defiant in that she got hoodwinked. She had her masters owned by one person and that person or that company sold them to her like arch nemesis, this guy that she had all this beef with, the Scooter Braun or whoever the guy, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. But basically, instead of laying down and saying, oh my God, my luck is so cruddy, she was like, I'll just re-record them. <laughs> and she's gone on to eclipse the popularity of all of those records with her own. She owns those masters. Now those are the master recordings um, that you turn in that people listen to. um, And that's what you use to make records. And that's what you use if they call you up and they want to use your song on TV or in a movie or whatever. And so that the economic uh, usage of your song is in the master. And that's typically what a record label owns or a publishing company has a piece of or whatever. Yeah, and so I would just want to interrupt and ask, um, cause for the listeners, for listeners who don't understand all the like complexity of, uh, yeah. copyright and ownership of music, what are the different things? Obviously there's the, there's the masters, there's the lyrics, there's the song, like what, how many different people can own one song? Well, it depends on how many people wrote on it really, mm-hmm. but you could, I mean, there's the there's the songwriting side of things where there's a pu- there's publishing and writing. 
Right. And so for every dollar, think of it this way, for every dollar that's, that gets made off of a song for the writers, there's, or sorry, for publishing, 50 cents goes to the writers and there could be 10 writers or one writer, depending on who wrote on it. And then 50 cents goes to the publishers. That publishing can be sold, bought, shared, given away, I think. Like ultimately that's that gets back to um, the writing of sheet music. And so it, like you, you really, there's no short way to describe all this, but the master is the recording. That's what you're, that's what's playing. That's what's being used to play on streaming services or on a CD or on a vinyl. The master is the recording of that song, that song and the intellectual property attached to that, that has to do with publishing. Okay. What she's saying is, I mean, she still sells tons of records. Most people don't. And, and, uh, that master recording is still being streamed in the billions, you know? And so for her arch nemesis to get a hold of that and to monetize that, sure, she gets a cut of it, but the lion's share of that recording is still owned by somebody else. And therefore the risk they originally took, the reward is theirs. So and so she owns now, she owns the songwriting and the master new, recording yes, of the new, new ones master. that she's recorded. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. And she's and she's breaking every record there is for live shows too. So this person by by controlling as much as she possibly can um it doesn't get exploited. Right. And all I was trying to say in that article was so many of the people in my um in my circle, the punk rock circle or whatever, uh claim this family thing they claim oh we're all in it together and you know but they're they're allowing themselves to either be exploited or other people are deciding to exploit them and i was like it's just funny the older you get you're like well you're, you're not actually doing it yourself you're you signed to a label that label holds on to your master forever it's etc and i just thought it was so bold and fierce ferocious of her to just say I'm going to take all the time I need, re-record these, and I'll make all the money. You and your investment are now out. You know, <laughs> it's just yeah. so cool. Yeah, my um, wife quickly explained to me what Taylor's version meant. Right. <laughs> like when, when, you know, when she's driving and I'm, I'm manning the, uh, the, the music playlist, make sure when you play Taylor, it's Taylor's version. I mean, well, think about yeah. that messaging. She was able to get that through to most people that don't think about this kind of stuff. Right. They just know she got done dirty. And if I listen to Taylor's version, right. I'm actually helping the artist. So people have this innate sense, I think, when they fall in love with songs and an artist's perspective and things like that, that they want their money. They want as much of the 10 bucks as they're spending to go to the artist. Mm -hmm. And I think that knowing that as a fan – has given me a lot of um, license to do, no pun intended, uh, to to take control of, of as much of it as we can too. So when I say we, it's me and my brother who co-write the songs and we own a record label. And this gets to, to that point. I had done records with independent record labels. We were on a major label, um, a subsidiary of a major label for most of my solo career. Um, it got bought by, this record label I was on got bought by a BMG. And it was like, hey, we got bought by BMG. The opportunities are going to roll in. It was like, it was the same. It was like, my career grows little and li little by little. Every record I put out, every tour I do, everything's just a little bit bigger. It goes a little bit better, which is amazing. It's typically by 45, your career is over. And so to have that steady growth 
is great despite not having like a hit that I can count on and that, you know, pours money into my mailbox every month. But ultimately, as I went, I realized like, okay, well, we're out of contract. They want to sign again. But in the pandemic, I kind of got under the hood and saw, okay, well, they're selling this many records. Could we do that? Like out of my brother's garage in Philadelphia, like set up our little shop and figure out mail order and, you know, farm some of it to Sony distribution, you know, for record stores and farm some of it to a person in Europe that, that fulfills mail order there. And if we could, what kind of money are we looking at? And when we flipped into that realm, it was life changing. It was, it was so amazing because we no longer had to ask for money for, uh, from a record label. We didn't have to ask them if it was okay to put out a record at this time. And, and again, I appreciate all the opportunities I got from every record label. Right. But at a certain point, it, it is by nature an exploitive system. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's somebody going, oh, you need 20 grand? I got 20 grand. Knowing full well that if anything goes right, a hundred grand's coming in. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, you know, and then you're going back to them going like, could I get another 20 grand? I got 10 more songs. And they're like, mm, could you make it 17? Can we make this one for 17? And you're like, I bet we made 150. You know, it's that kind of thing that I think artists kind of don't understand. And you have so little capital when you're getting going that you're like, all right, I, I guess I'll just take this bad loan. It'll just get me heard. And I think once we, once I could kind of count on an audience to kind of show up in the thousands, thousands of people order our records when we put a, a record up. And that helps feed my family now. So it's a, it's a much different paradigm um, to kind of work from. Someone comes up to you now and says, Dave, I'm, I'm really, you know, I've, I've been working at this. I, I want to make being a musician a career. What, what advice do you give them? I don't know. I think uh, that's a great question. It's a question I get asked often and I rarely have a great answer because I think there's a big difference in what you can do when you're 25 um, and, and no one's ever heard you and what you can do when you're 45 and you've made six or eight full length records and toward the world. And there's a certain understanding of what your voice is. So there's a little bit more freedom in that, you know, in, in just establishing your artistic self, but there's also no infrastructure. You don't know who's going to listen or what's going to happen. So I don't know, like, strategically what to tell anyone. Um, what I would say is if you're going to get involved, you've got to be okay with, like, you got to like all the work. And what I mean by that is, like, you got to like getting your guitar out in the club and opening it up and, like, doing sound check. And you got to kind of like driving from town to town. And you got to really like songwriting and the magic that happens when, you, when you're sitting there and you have nothing and then, an hour or two hours later, you have a full song that you could like play for your friend or, or your, or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever. Um, you got to like that part. And I, because I think if you're really into all that, then it doesn't feel as much like work because it's good. It's so much work. It's just, it's an incredible amount of sacrifice. It's not easy on a family. It's not easy on a relationship. Um, it's, it's hard to navigate being a parent. Um, I think when you travel as much as we need to, um, so I think, you know, it would depend on where the person was in life, you know, it would depend on like, 
<clears throat> you know, if they had three kids and a really good job, I'd say like, enjoy doing it as a hobby and see what happens. Because why would you blow up your life? If you were a young kid and you had no entanglements <clears throat> or enmeshments as, as, um, isn't that what Will and, and Jada had was enmeshment? I think, um, I think that's the word, enmeshment. If you have enmeshments, it may, it's really hard to make things happen because you have to be able to you know, sacrifice an enormous amount of time and effort just to show up and have nobody be there initially. <laughs> you know, it's, a, it's a weird life. We ask everybody who comes on the podcast this question, and I'm really eager to see what your answer is. AI, what do you see as the, we're just going to go short term, not, can't even predict long term, short term, next three to five years, how does AI affect the music industry? How does it affect you specifically? I'm not that worried. I mean, I'm more worried about how it impacts democracy and poor people and, uh, you know, how information gets spread around that will, like, could really damage humanity and, and, and the ability for us to, uh, like, slip further in, into an inhumane world. Right. It could be like social media 2.0, like to the yeah. extreme. Yeah. Yeah, and if those are the true worries, like songs and songwriting are very uh, low on my priority list in terms of things that are threatened, because most of what I have built for my career is based on my perspective. And I think you could probably plug in like, hey, make a Dave Haas song about going to Lake Kachuma to an AI thing, and you get it pretty good. But I highly doubt that anyone would be snowed at least not yet mm -hmm. um, because I, again, like I think what makes, I mean, big or small, whether or not you've had tons of success or a little bit of success, you're kind of going to Oppenheimer for, for Christopher Nolan's perspective, right? He's got a way of presenting the information that he's interested in that gets you excited. gets you fired up. And I think on a smaller level, that's what I'm doing. I look at the world in a peculiar, like, is the glass half empty or is it half full? Am I worried about the future of, of America or humanity or am I joyful? You know, I, I try to put as much of that into the lyrics and into what I'm doing as I can. And I think that's what people respond to is that honest approach to whatever it is I'm writing about. So AI, I don't think is going to be quite able to pull that off at least not yet and then if it does it'll make songwriting so much easier i'll just plug that in and, and i'll have a record <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i just think i think at the end of the day for, when you get to sing songs to people as your job and you may i mean i've lived in santa barbara for almost 10 years you know like we're not we're certainly not rolling in dough but we've made it work in the nicest place you can find. So it, you can make a decent living doing this. And on some level, you know, my dad worked doing accounts receivable for um, a stone quarry his entire life. Mm. And so when that's your model of what you probably do, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, I'll probably do whatever my dad did or something close to it. Maybe I'll try to get a, a little. When that's your model and you've been writing songs and playing them for people for 20 years and putting out records and we just, you know, we just invented a festival in Philadelphia that we put on. When that's your life, there's always a little bit of you that's waiting for someone to tap you on the shoulder and go, 
it's over. It's, the, <laughs> the jig is up. <laughs> the jig is up. You have to go back to breaking up rocks in the yard. And I'll be like, all right, okay, I get it. So it. You know, I'm working hard to not have to do that. I'm working hard to make sure my kids don't have to do that. But in the end, like, there is a part of me that understands that, you know, the world will go on without songwriters. It won't be pretty. It won't be a world I want to live in. But I get that my place is, is uh, I get what my place is in the world. And, and I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm humbled by the fact that I can still do this work in spite of all that. And so I, the AI thing, I'm, again, I'm more worried about like, what kind of monsters that's going to pull out of the closet for yeah. like American democracy or racism or, you know what I mean? It's going to sure. have really wild impacts. Uh, you know, it could affect the water supply or something like that. Like I'm more worried about that when it comes to AI. Yeah. Is there a uh, instrument you wish you knew how to play? Guitar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I wish, I wish I had a more comprehensive knowledge of all the instruments. I think that's the detriment of punk rock for me was it was an easy thing to learn how the mechanics of that music worked. And it allowed me to get going and make up songs, which is awesome. It's beautiful. It democratizes the entire process. It also can keep you limited in terms of what you can and can't do. Like, I'm not a virtuoso at any part of any instrument. And so it, it puts me in this bizarre position where it's like, well, I'm really good at being Dave Haas. You know, like, that's the thing I'm actually good at, whatever that means. And, that, and that's when you come to see the various iterations of whatever that show is, that's what it is. And so it even more makes it feel like a hustle. Like, man, I got away with something here. You know, <laughs> it's like sooner or later, I might end up being more of a festival promoter than anything, you know, if our festival continues to grow. So I don't know. It's I'm, I'm pretty humble about it all because, you know, wh again, when you say you're a songwriter and you don't have hits, people go like, oh, that's a peculiar, like, how do you live on our street? You know, I've definitely said to neighbors what I do and they're like, Wait, I, so I don't know any of your songs <laughs> here. You know, I'm like, ah, it's complicated. <laughs> I want to try something kind of on the fly here. Go um, for it. Yeah, I've got your your YouTube channel up, and you you mentioned earlier there was some live footage you thought might be interesting to see. So maybe we can just pull that up and hear a little bit of the music. Oh, um, I don't know that we would have posted a ton of live. Footage. Oh, okay. Yeah, that would be more like you, you would you would find fans posting that. Um, oh, oh, you mean like literally from like people's phones and the audience and stuff like oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I don't, we don't, you know, yeah, like yeah. It would, Dave Haas plays the ditch in Berlin or something. I don't know. It would be something more like that. Um, Let's try it. But I, I mean, I don't know if that even exists. But like <laughs> Berlin you know, or here's something Berlin or you know something. Yeah. I don't. Let's see. Yeah, this looks like it's from someone's phone. This is it. Awesome. I don't know where we, where are we? Oh yeah, we're in Berlin. That was a great show. People are players back there. Clapping Mark. Look at Mark go. Big hat. Yeah, I don't know. This is uh this was a particularly great show. In oh Berlin. good. Yeah. Glad we picked a good one. It's amazing too now, like with, with phones. I mean, this looks like something that was shot for, uh, you know, uh, 
HBO or something. The quality yeah. of it is incredible. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's what you think of when you think, oh my my friend is a songwriter and this is his work. Like this is what you think of. This yeah. Is rock and roll. This is Dave Haas and the Mermaid playing to I don't know how many people were there, but a big rock club in, in Germany. Not even a year ago, right? Uh, September 16th, yeah, 2022. September, yeah. 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 So then, you know, and then you could find, very easily find probably video of us playing to 100 people in North Carolina last month. Well, let's see if we can find a smaller show. Oh, you'll be able to. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, Dave. Um, you... oh, there's, a, there's a record store in New Jersey we played. Okay, let's like see. A mean, that was a means of them... Yeah, there we go. That was just in, in June. And then that's, that's your brother, Tim, to the left, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so that's like, you know, 75 people maybe bought a copy of the record in order to get into that record store. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's valuable for us to do is, A, you know, people want to come. But also, it's a great way to establish a relationship with that record store they're excited about the records we're putting out which we own the master for they're willing to buy more records etc etc right, so yeah. part of how the career or the business um sort of develops because i mean i I'm, i guess i'm just trying to keep it as career oriented for you guys because i know that's kind of the focus of the podcast yeah you know you, you've mentioned a little bit a couple times about cds and selling physical media is that still an important revenue stream for you as a musician and what do you see the future of that being with streaming being the CDs sort of- are, are not but not. Vinyl, vinyl is it is um, yeah I think it's been such it's been so good for us with selling vinyl that I actually think our streaming numbers for the first time have gone down wow interesting our fans know now that we own the record label right they know, they're like hey if we buy this record for 25 bucks from Tim and Dave this is the best way. So that's not a bad thing, right? The no, streaming may be going down, but if it's, you know, evened well, out by you'd want it vinyl. to be both because I still think that streaming is like a way people are discovering you. Um, but we don't make any money off that, even owning the master. Like, we, or I mean, not any, but it's so negligible. It's minuscule. Like, yeah. yeah, it's just like I'd much, I would much prefer someone bought a record or a CD. It's just I don't know how people even play CDs anymore. unless you- <laughs> I was just thinking about that. I found yeah, some old tapes, um, some crank calls from my childhood and I, they were on cassette tape and I couldn't even find a way to play. I had to buy a cassette player. And then I realized right. my cars don't have it. My cars don't have CD players anymore. You know, so it's, now, wait a minute. I see a lot of equipment back there. There's no cassette player anywhere back there amongst there, all your, there is literally not. Now there is, <laughs> I just bought one, but no, I don't have anything <laughs> to play a cassette. I didn't up until last week. Um, but. Yeah, a lot of that stuff, like, I don't have as much of a hot take on it all because it's – I kind of think about it like this. Like, if Pearl Jam and Beyonce haven't figured out the streaming thing, then I'm not going to. Right. Mm-hmm. In other words, I can sort of lean into the fact that it's a, it's a problem that we all have to solve. And I remember thinking about, like, when streaming first started to take hold, Spotify first started to take hold – Everybody in an interview wanted to know about it. And I finally realized, like, you know, it's just a matter of time before this comes for movies. Once files can continually get traded and made smaller and smaller, 
the movie theaters and or sorry the movie uh, studios the movie studios and the movie industry is going to have the same problem and now mm-hmm. look at us we're in the middle of a writers and actor strike essentially around this very same thing and so i think it becomes more of a cultural question and a cultural problem um because and a lot of that i think is informed by going to europe when i go to europe they've got all the same technology but there's a there's a different approach to life. There's a different approach to culture. There's a different approach to commerce. And I think that they place an outsized value on human things, humanity, you know, putting humans first instead of putting profits and corporations first. And I've noticed that over a long period of going over there and a long period of being an American and watching it slide further and further for for us in our country towards the bottom line as being the only governing principle. And I think being able to see evidence in other countries where that's not as much the focus, um, it gives you a little bit of hope. You're like, all right, well, you know, other, maybe it's just an American thing. I don't know. Yeah. AI can't replace live music. At least it's not going to for a very long time. So the idea of musicians, not just, you know, being a musician is more than just recording it and selling it. It's performing it live. It's connecting with fans, right? It's connecting with fans. I think that's the main thing for me that ultimately drives the, the endeavor is, is, again, you get back to perspective, you get back to lyrical perspective, how you deliver the songs. Some of them are intensely quiet. Some of them are really loud and rocked out and so on and so forth. But ultimately, the the goal is to connect in, in, in a way that it's really hard to connect in conversation or in regular life or in community. Music does this other magic thing that I haven't found anything like it. I mean, sports does it as well, but it's, it's also divisive in, in a lot of ways because you're rooting for two different teams. But um, Go Birds. Music, that's right. <laughs> Bob and I are never rooting for two different teams. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think that's the beauty of music in that, um, it's the, it's the closest thing to magic that I've found. And it's a way to communicate with other people that I find that to be such a hard thing to do the older I get and and the further along I go. And so to have that kind of glint in your eye when you're playing a song and see that glint get reflected back by someone else, you're like, Oh, it made me feel less alone to hear a song music and it makes them feel less alone to hear mine and that is just that's like worth all of the um the time the effort the lack of money the discomfort all that other stuff when that thing happens you're like you feel a little bit elevated out of your own body you're like oh my god i just achieved like a transcendent kind of moment and that's ultimately really what you're chasing more so than than uh than a career it's more like can i get away with getting that feeling as often as possible and how that's kind of the goal yeah well I'm, I'm glad you've been able to to get that feeling for a while now so dave i feel like we could talk to you all night but really want to thank you so much for for coming on love to have you back and really appreciate you taking the time yeah think- man I'm, I'm excited for your endeavor and, and rooting for it so i'm happy to do it thanks so much for having me on well that'll do it yeah um another episode in the books uh as always you can always listen to us at careerlabpodcast.com and uh, listen to us on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify as well. If you like what we're doing, visit our website, 
like and subscribe to us on YouTube and get notifications of new shows as soon as they drop. 